Hey ladies, listen up. We have a public service announcement here in the suite. To celebrate Women's History Month, Transamerica will donate $1 to Savvy Ladies for every social engagement during the month of March in support of their mission, empowering women to achieve financial independence. Simply tag Savvy Ladies, that's S-A-V-V-Y-L-A-D-I-E-S, and use the hashtag Women Who Inspire. And in case you don't know about Savvy Ladies, they offer a 24-hour hotline to women in need of legal and financial advice, as well as resources and education for women who want to become financially independent. You can check them out at SavvyLadies.org. Thanks. Hi, this is Tina Powell, host of In the Suite where I sit down with top women leaders and some of the biggest names in the financial services and the wealth management industry. Together, we'll discover some of their best secrets and top strategies to grow great business, build a strong brand, and lead teams in the 21st century. I hope you'll enjoy hearing their amazing personal stories of triumph, trepidation, and transformation in hopes of becoming better leaders ourselves. The time for you to lead is now and you're in the suite. Over the course of her career as a financial advisor, Michelle Arpin Bagina has worked with hundreds of executives, business owners, and entrepreneurs as a gateway to their personal financial freedom. But what differentiates Michelle from other financial advisors is that she has spent the last two plus decades studying the unconventional, non-financial behavioral side of the industry and earning a financial graduate certificate from Kansas State University in financial therapy. Yes, financial therapy. After all, Michelle is a technician of financial planning, investments, and wealth management and has the industry credentials and Vitae to prove it. She's a certified financial planner, a certified investment management analyst, and a senior partner managing director at Snowden Lane Partners. Prior to that, Michelle spent almost nine years at Morgan Stanley and 10 years at Merrill Lynch. Michelle is also a member of the Forbes Business Council and has been featured in Forbes and Thrive Global. But that's just the prologue to Michelle's amazing story, which is just getting started. In order to help her clients manage their own emotions with money, Michelle first had to relive her own stories on paper and then tell them out loud. Those stories provided the will and the way to her own breakthroughs and Michelle's new soon-to-be-released book, Good with Money, Creating Wealth from the Inside Out. One of the many gifts that you'll discover about Michelle Arpin-Bagina is the bold expression of her new personal brand, Michelle A.B. It's a symbol she proudly wears around her neck, literally in the form of a necklace. Michelle A.B. lights her up and gives her purpose to act as a gateway for successful professional women to access their own insight so they can take inspired action to realize their boldest ambitions. Michelle's mother always used to say, it's what's inside that counts. And what's always been on the inside of Michelle Arpin Bagina was her resilience, resourcefulness, and unshakable belief in herself. And she's pretty sure too, if you're listening to this episode, it's what's inside you too, in the suite. So, 
you know, one of the reasons that I wanted to bring you here into the suite is because you have a fascinating background and the way that you are bringing your brand into the future is something really, really exciting. And I think someone like you that has had the depth and breadth of the experience here, you've been at Merrill Lynch, you've been at Morgan Stanley, and then also to you have some certifications. I think to talk to someone like you is really fascinating, especially your work right now that you're doing with financial literacy. So for our listening audience right now, you are the founder and gateway of do I say Michelle Ab? Is that how you're how you're like bringing the brand together? Michelle Ab. So okay, Michelle Ab. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. And then you're also a senior managing partner at Snowden Lane Partners. You're official member of the Forbes Business Council. So a lot of interesting things about your origin story. So why don't I let you kind of explain it? Well, why don't I start with Michelle Ab and how that came about. Michelle A.B. is really a compliment to my wealth management practice. And how it got started is that I wrote a book. And in writing that book, I realized that I had a brand and my book does not talk about any of the traditional how-to advice around what to actually do with your money, right? So it's, it's sort of the proverbial, I think, client experience where somebody comes in And the advisor, you know, she might say the advisor just wanted to talk about my money and I wanted to talk about me. And it's really all the talking about me kind of stuff when it comes to money. My title that I chose and my inspiration was actually Simon Sinek. Uh, Mm. Start with why. Absolutely. So my title is Founder and Gateway. Simon Sinek, I was listening to this interview, a podcast where On his business card, it's a Simon Sinek optimist. And he picked that because he said, you know, I may never write another book again, so I don't want to put author. I may never do another speech again. I don't want to say speaker. And he said, well, what am I and what will I universally always be? And he said, an optimist. And it really got me thinking. And I said, okay, well, I don't believe in gatekeepers. I think we're all gateways. I have been a gateway. I am a gateway. And everybody goes, well, what is that? So what a gateway is, is that no one holds the keys more than we do, right? We are an expert in ourself. And whether you're an advisor, a counselor, a coach, I think the best of the best these days have really started to understand that we hold space for one another. And by holding space, what it allows is for that person to access those inaccessible points or things that felt inaccessible to them. And they tap into their inspiration, and their motivation, because inspiration and motivation is half the battle, I think, with knowing where you came from and knowing uh, where you're coming from when it comes to your money. So, uh, in fact, I, the logo on my website represents a gate. And I love it so much. I actually, none of your listeners can see, but I actually had a necklace made with my logo. That's how much I love my brand. I love how you've just defined your your personal brand. When I saw the title of Gateway, I did say, and I said, wait, what? what is that? I've never seen it before. But the way that you're talking about it with Simon Sinek and 
how, you know, that optimist, you, you leave us right now. I'm sitting here, Michelle, and I'm already having an aha moment. We're just like five minutes into this podcast. Here's what I want to also know, right? Because what I see historically is, uh, again, a, a presence that's much more, I guess, rooted in the way that we used to do things. And now you come out really strong right out of the gate. I love that. It is. It's like a racehorse right out of the gate. Yeah. And you also have a little bit of an origin story with horses there too. And now you have this bold expression of a personal brand, right? That literally you go from like, you went to total game changer. So like, what's the catalyst for that? Oh my gosh. The, uh, I don't even know which direction to go in to answer this first. Um, first of all, thank you so much for those compliments about the brand. Um, it, it took a team of people really helping me to excavate more and more of who I was to put it into that brand. And I just got, um, actually, I had a misstep where I was working with someone and I was ready to launch it. And I have two clients of mine who are former CMOs of some major companies. And I had them take a look and their comments actually made me completely stop dead in my tracks. I did not launch the website. And in fact, I had to change gears. It was one of the hardest conversations I ever had in my life. I had to let that person go completely start from scratch and redo. And the end result is what I now have. So it's interesting that you're sensing like this breakout kind of moment because I, as I went from more of the traditional broker dealer world into the independent world, there were a couple of things going on for me. One, my money backstory was the best kept secret on Wall Street. Nobody knew. My husband didn't. Mm. I, I wow. Was, I there. It was like uh, you know surface level conversations and. When I was transitioning, going independent, by that point, I had finished my studies at Kansas State University. I'd done their graduate program in financial therapy, which was endlessly fascinating. And I knew during that period that I wanted to start to write and I wanted to start to contribute to the industry and the retail space at large, just in a kind of a general type of sense. By way of writing my book, which this is kind of an interesting, there's always a story in a, within a story for me. So I have two sons who play lacrosse and I took one of my sons down to an indoor lacrosse practice. It was this really miserable wintry night. He went inside to do his practice. I sat in the car and I, I make these little deals with myself. So I had files sitting on you know the passenger seat of the car and I said, okay, when you get that work done, then you can read this magazine. So I had picked up this magazine and okay, got the work done. I treat myself, I'm reading the magazine. And there was a story about Megan Kelly, the newscaster. Yes, of course. And the writer got her, her to really go into a lot of depth, not just about her rise to broadcast journalism, but more of her personal background. And she started talking about how she feels about money and how anxious she is about it and how uncomfortable she is having it and how uncomfortable she is talking about money with her children. And something hit me like a lightning bolt. Like most people would want to contact Megan Kelly and say, Megan, you know, you have multiple millions of dollars. Let me help you manage that. No, 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 no. 
I wanted to reach Megyn Kelly to say, I can help you to figure out how to talk to your children. So I actually created, right? This was just my brainstorm. So I created a guidebook. I then like age specific to her kids. Right. And she's got three sons too, right? Like you have two sons and she has three sons. Right? She has uh, two boys and a girl. Oh, okay. There's two boys and a girl. And anyway, I, so I'm kind of a build it and they will come sort of person. And so I just acted on this inspiration. Then I started going out to my network and saying, all right, who do I know who could just get, like, I had such an old fashioned vision of this. Like someone would literally hand her like, you know, my, the documents I created and said, Hey, you know, Michelle's created this for you. And it was like a bless and release kind of thing. Well, that's like, that's so backwards to even like think that's how it was all going to go down. Like the, the yeah. digital involved. Okay. So I go out to my network. I exhaust, nobody can get me close. I then there's a club that I belong to in the city. I go to the founder of the club. Cause this one day I'm like, all right, well, who's the most connected person I know. So I thought of her lo and behold, she gave me the names of three people. One of them was the retired CEO of Harper Collins, the publisher who was also yeah. Megan's publisher. So I met with her, her name is Jane Met with her. She ended up getting my materials to Megan. More importantly, she got really, really interested in my ideas. And I originally wanted to write a book about financial literacy because I think it's time that we move the needle on the conversation in our country about that. Uh, that's not the book that I've written. What I basically have written is the uh, creating wealth from the inside out kind of book. Okay. Yeah. And it's called good with money and it's coming out in 2021. Yep. So that was the genesis of really starting the book and having this champion behind me. Who's like, Oh no, no, you don't need Megan Kelly. You need to write this book. I've never heard ideas. Now Jane, her name is Jane Friedman. Jane Friedman invented author book tours. She's mm. books on tape. Like she's the grand dame of publishing. So when the grand dame of publishing tells you write a book, you write a book. <laughs> So I've spent the last couple of years working on that and I'm kind of circling the drain here, but what has circled my entire life and the pieces now are, are just becoming more and more clear is something that I call high performance defiance. How we do one thing is not how we do everything. Okay. Hmm. High performance defiance. Yep. My father, my parents were high performers and defiant as hell when it came to their money. They worked hard. They made a great living, right? So it's not about having enough. They had more than enough, but they were a hot mess when it came to their money. Megan Kelly, I can't say whether she's a hot mess or not. I'm not making any sort of judgment there, but she's got a little point of anxiety that, uh, and, and again, I don't know her making some assumptions here, but if she's being interviewed and that's coming up in an interview and no one is helping her to solve that problem, right? She, I'm sure she's got advisors around here. That's missing the financial forest for the trees because mm. we all want to feel good about our money as we create our wealth. And often we, we feel wealthy when we're not, or we are wealthy. We don't feel it. And I think that they should be unified. So that's the whole genesis of the book. And then the book has just morphed from, you know, the process of, thinking it was going to be one thing and then you, you know, you start getting your hands dirty and then it turns into what it's really supposed to be. So in that process, I had to decide how much of my story am I going to put into this book? 
And I was so resistant. I wasn't going to put any of my story into the book. And then the more I thought about that, I thought, okay, now I have to put parts of my story because people are going to wonder, like, why are you even interested in this? Or how have you become so good at helping people manage their relationship with money, right? That internal relationship and their emotions. So I forced myself in this process. This is about two and a half years ago. I forced myself to go to a one-day public speaking course. And I vowed, all right, I partly did it as a fresher, a refresher, and I partly did it as if you get the opportunity to stand up and tell your story, you're going to do it. So in my mind, you know, concrete jungle where dreams are made of, it just, I, I've purposely put myself in a situation that it felt very high stakes mm-hmm. because I really... At that point, I needed to get the stories out of me because on some level, I was realizing that they were eating my lunch and I needed to get rid of them. I think that people look at people like you, Michelle, and that we see a very successful woman that has had a very impressive career and thinking that money and your relationship with money has just been great from the very beginning. You grew up in a well-to-do family, right? I would like to share a little bit if you're comfortable with it. That's where the contrast is that we make too many assumptions that people who have money have always had a great relationship. And it was when I can relate to what you're saying, because when I got really clear about my relationship with money, it defines exactly why I do back to the Simon Sinek, right? Why I do what I, what it is that I do. And you've done so many things with it. So I would like to get into the story behind the money. I next want to talk about, you know, how you started to ladder that in. Thank you for asking. And I know we are like sisters in having um, a really colorful financial background that, uh, you know, looking at us now, (laughs) nobody could tell. (laughs) So I think there are three stories I can tell that will personify my upbringing. My parents like I said, you know, I, I will throw them under the bus lovingly. I'm just going to warn your listeners and, and then hopefully rescue them. So the three stories are when I was six years old, my father came into my bedroom. I was waking up and um, asked me if he could borrow some money. And I asked him, I don't even know what made me ask him at six years old, but I said, what do you need the money for? And he said, cigarettes. And I said, no. And what's fascinating is, man, I was putting my values where my mouth was, even at six years old, right? Kind of a badass. I'm not surprised. (laughs) So I said no. And he gave me this look, like if looks could kill, it was just like disdain on his face when I said no. And he looked at me, gave me that awful look. And then he, and then he took the money. Right. Wow. Oh boy. And in a piggy bank, like I'm, I'm imagining, right? Like there it is. Yep. Yep. Piggy bank, top of my dresser, private bedroom space, asking permission, pretending to ask permission. That's the key thing here. Wow. And 
So I, I started crying, not because I was upset that he took the money. I started crying. It was like tears of frustration because I felt so misunderstood that he mm. thought I was just being stingy when I was looking out for him. That's why I said no. Fast forward, there's a lot more color here, but I think there, there are like three stories that really, you know, give a timeline and illustrate some lessons. So when I was 10, I grew up in New Jersey. Our family's originally from Rhode Island. My mom was visiting family for a couple of weeks. My brother and I were home with my father. And by the way, we ate like hot dogs and canned beans for two weeks straight because <laughs> that was the only thing my dad knew how to cook. Um, anyway, he was in the moving and storage business and he went out to give somebody an estimate who was moving and the gentleman was selling an automobile, a Jaguar. And he had always wanted to have and drive a Jag. So he called my mom and he said, there's a great deal on this Jag. I really want to buy this car. And she said, no. And he bought the car anyway. Oh, that's wild. Pretend permission. So he garaged the car you know, in our, in our garage, in our house. And I remember, and he swore us to secrecy, which made me feel terrible when my mom would call because I knew this car was parked in the garage and. Oh boy. But then the, 10 on top of it. Yes. And yeah. the smart Alec in me is literally like saying, what do you think? She's not going to notice. Like I'm going to say this out loud, but I'm like, <laughs> okay, well you can imagine the fireworks and you know, uh, the explosion that happened when she came home and I, you know, I secretly wanted her to lower the boom on him. Like yeah. on so many levels, right? This is what psychologists would call enmeshing someone, right? You're given information that's ahead of your time, what we would call TMI today, right? So mm -hmm. I should not have known any of this stuff when I was 10 years old or any other time. Okay. Fast forward. I'm now 17. Mm. And I'm standing on a dock at a marina and over my father's shoulder is a brand new yacht that my parents have purchased. And I'm talking to my father about the start of college, which should have been that fall. And he literally looked me in the eyes and shrugged his shoulders and said, I don't have the money to send you to college. Just that matter of factly. And what's super interesting, and this is, this is where the breakthroughs really started happening for me. One, I'm a learner. Like, I know you're going to ask me about which, what's one of my favorite books. Like the hardest question you're ever going to ask me is which is my favorite book? Because I literally will blow dry my hair reading books. <laughs> That's how much I love to learn. But I was met. Okay. But here's the cruelty of the situation is that while I was growing up, I was always told you can be anything you want to be. You're smart. You'll be the first to go to college. My father even took me on college campus tours. Oh, you're kidding. No. So every indication short of seeing the money in the bank account was oh. we will support you and send you to college. Okay. Oh, gosh. So in writing the book, and this is actually, this part of the story is what actually led me to then go to that one day refresher and tell my story. Cause I had not told any of this story ever. When I was writing the book, I made myself relive the moments of what transpired on that dock and what did I do after? And then what did I do in the ensuing months? So when I say I didn't react, it probably was shock, but I just stood there looking at him. I didn't say a word. 
I didn't, I didn't move a muscle. My brain literally went nuts. Yeah. College costs, but this is where it went. College costs a lot of money. I don't have any money. How am I going to get money? Get a job. Like the wheels were just turning because you know, we say when, when there's a will, there's a way. Yes. What I say is the will is the way. The will is the way. That that is awesome. Okay, the will will is the way. So here you are. You're, you know, you're 17 years old. You've been on different college campuses. You're you've been led led to believe that yes, college is is in your future. And then you're right. And then you're looking at your future college in the form of a yacht in a marina. That's right. So. I had a few things going for me. I had been the, the the double side of the cruelty is one, you know, having been led to believe that this would be something that my parents would support me on also creates a mindset of being a college graduate in waiting. In my head, I was going to college. College was in my plan. So the fact that my parents had a different plan all of a sudden didn't wow. change my plan. Right, right. I, I'm a college guy. I'm smart. I'm going to college. I've been told that my whole life. I believe it, right? So now, what? when we think about will, I'll, I'll speak for myself. I always go to strong will and willpower. Mm. But if you really study the will, there's strong will. That's just, that's not being strong-headed. That's the conviction and the clarity of knowing what you want. There's skilled will, knowing how, about how to go about things to get things done. There's goodwill. And then there's transpersonal will. And I think what lifted me up and out of those circumstances was the transpersonal will, which was really believing that I could rise above my circumstances with absolutely no visibility of how that was going to happen. The universe, I think, conspired to do something super cool for me. So I literally left the dock that day. I I have like barely any recollection of the rest of the summer other than getting busy on finding a job. And I did find a job. I started working for a bank as a teller that fall instead of going to college. And almost immediately, they asked me to take a a community college course. And they said, if you pass this, we'll reimburse you the tuition. Hmm. Ding, 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 ding. I had no idea of anything called tuition, uh, college tuition reimbursement. Exactly. Exactly. That was the universe. That's absolutely the universe for sure. That's how I paid for my education. Eight years of night school working full time. I paid for my education mainly through corporate America reimbursing me for the college tuition. That's how I did it. We are definitely sisters of another time. Our money stories both have to do with Jaguars, right? Yep. Jaguars and my money story. Right. Yep. Thank you again for watching my TEDx talk. Yep. Put on the show notes, right? I worked three jobs to get my undergrad. Uh, you went to Ryder. I went to Barely Dickinson, both living in New Jersey. Incredible. But then you went on, right? So here's, I love this. I love how just the universe responded that the will was so, so strong. And you not only went on to writer, you've got a, you know, BS, then you went to Kansas City State University for your financial therapy graduate certification. And I would like to say to the audience here that you're also a certified financial planner. So you have a CFP credential and you're also to certified investment management analyst. So you've got the SEMA 
credential as well. So then here you are, you finished college. What I'm so curious about is what did dad say? So I started the job in the fall and they, and it actually, I started that course in the fall. Awesome. It took me about a year to figure out like, you know, what I was doing, you know, am I dabbling or am I really taking this seriously now? And I started taking it seriously. And there was a number one person in my life, someone who turned out to be my very first real mentor, not somebody who was assigned to me, but somebody who there was just that natural interest. He happened to be my father's corporate attorney for his business. And somebody that I had heard his name all growing up, but until I got into my teens, I had never actually met him face to face. And I met him and I got to know him. And as I was dabbling, we would talk pretty frequently. And he said to me, you're way too smart not to get your degree. He basically said, get your butt in gear. He didn't know the whole story, but he knew enough of the story to know like, you know, something was going wrong here. And I remember saying to him, you know, I really don't have the money. And he said to me, never let money stand in the way of anything that you want to achieve, which sounds like, you know, when you're 18 years old, like what? How's that? And you kind of start to understand that as you get older. But it took me about a year to really get in gear. So what I ended up doing was getting my associate's degree from Mercer County Community College in Mercer County, New Jersey. And then I transferred to Ryder to get the undergraduate degree. So I, I did the thing that now everybody's starting to talk about, which is one of our you know, most underutilized assets are our community colleges, you know, around our country. So that's how I, that's really how I, I did it, you know, and that was number one, having somebody in my corner, even mm-hmm. though we know all of the dirty details, but seeing the light in me and not doing any, you know, not doing the work for me because nobody can do any work for you, but truly being that support, you know, and whereas my parents who were really good people underneath it all, I mean, really screwed up with their money, but good people at their heart, they were not college graduates themselves, right? So you can't teach what you don't know. Right, right. The support was sporadic. I think they wrestled to some degree, even though they had talked about my going to school, I think they wrestled with their own identities and my forging my identity and probably a fear of me leaving the nest and kind of leaving the herd. And as much as I think we all talk about how we want the next generation to do better than this generation... There is a tribe and herd mentality that that goes on. You know, there is a little bit of breaking away that has to happen, maybe not completely, but to reach another level higher than your prior generation takes some fortitude to do it. And on both parts, you know, parents actually seeing and supporting um, where this was concerned, there there was no support from my parents, you know, emotional or financial or or otherwise. And it really... um, You know, there was an energetic break from that moment on the dock with both of my parents. It just took me about 30 years to figure out that there was an energetic break because I kept holding out for the fantasy parents for a long, long time and had to do a lot of work around accepting who they were and who they are and also accepting myself. And part of accepting myself was telling my stories because the biggest travesty of not telling our stories really is is does anybody really get to know us for real? 
if we are holding such things back, whatever it is, money or, you know, whatever it is. I mean, we all have shadow sides of ourselves, and there are dramas and then there are traumas, right? So I was definitely holding back some trauma. And was part of this getting to this place, it does take an extraordinary amount of courage. I, I think the biggest battle that you face is the battle within yourself, that you you were really smart and clever to hit upon the fact that there is some group mentality and that when you start to adapt a different narrative and tell a different story, that by definition, then that puts you in, a, in another place. And the way that I also, too, have learned to reconcile with it, and you tell me if this is also true for you, is that our, our parents did and the people in our lives did the best job that they could possible, that the, the, the heart was there, right? But the actions, because they didn't know what they didn't know. They didn't have the same tools and the communications and just even society didn't behave the way that society now behaves. We're more, I guess, transparent, and then it's okay to tell our stories. I think a lot of the reasons why we don't is because we are so fearful that we're going to lose our jobs. We're going to, you know, disappoint people. They're going to read it the wrong way. And that is the battle that takes place inside your head. Inside your head, it is a wrestling match. It is a, it is a death-defying act. Mm-hmm. Right? Absolutely. Yeah, it's a mental arm, arm wrestle for a long, long time. <laughs> so you stop doing it and really realize, but you're right. And, you know, Brene Brown, I really credit her. She is, she's had the single biggest impact on my life for someone that I've never met. And thank goodness for her work. You know, I, as a matter of fact, as I was writing and I literally made myself sit down and relive the story and write it and put it to paper. And I then got really curious about why, was I holding the secrets back so much? And what I came up with, and this was, you know, I call this my own little, you know, self-therapy, is two things. I used to use this expression that I threw myself into busy from 17 into my 20s, right? My 20s were go to work, go to school, do your homework, go to sleep, get up the next day and do that. That I, I cut out all socialization. And what I realized is, I cut out all socialization for two reasons. One, when we face a stress, we either reach out for help, we go inward, or we lash out. I'm going to go inward. I just take it all in. I'm going to deal with it, right? That's my reaction. So I actually learned that by looking at some of the notes in the back of uh, one of Brene Brown's books and then finding the research papers and starting to read them, and it started making sense of why I did that. The other reason I did it was that I was desperate to keep the secret that my parents were spendthrifts, that every single time they bought an airplane, a yacht, an automobile, you name it, they were down to their last five bucks. We were always Mm -hmm. in, you know, our skin's teeth of bouncing a check or the house being foreclosed on. I probably wanted to keep that secret more than my parents did. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And... The other reason, especially when the boat incident happened, and somebody asked me once, you know, why was that moment so impactful for you? Which could seem like a really insensitive question to ask on the surface, and it wasn't. What 
it made me understand was that I grew up witnessing the relationship between my parents and how they were handling their money, how they were talking about it individually and together. Now, I always had a roof over my head. I always had food. But my parents' relationship with money was like breathing in secondhand smoke Mm. growing up. And what I realized was in answering that question was when my father made the decision to buy that boat, it was the first time I got hit with the torpedo. My whole life, my mom was, and my my parents were kind of hitting each other with torpedoes. It was the first direct hit to me. That's why it made so much impact. And I should have seen it coming because the pattern kept repeating. I'm going to ask for permission. I'm going to pretend to ask for permission. I'm going to do what I want anyway. Defiant, defiant, defiant. The bank, the Jaguar, now the boat. And I didn't because we rely on our parents for all of our safety, right? So I never saw it until I did. And beginning to tell that story, it's like there, I'm sure you feel this way too, like, there's life before you told the story and then there's life after and the amount of peace that I started experiencing and then really stepping into who I am, which I'm so proud of, like (laughs) all the things that I've done and accomplished. I think the thing I'm most proud of is just more fully embracing who I, who I am and telling my stories. And I I've always felt like I've, I keep it real with people. I've always done that. I think I've always had an authenticity. This is, this just takes it all the way up to the notches that I'm capable of giving at least right now. And I'm sure as I continue to evolve, which I think the whole process of living is keep growing and evolving. I'll just hopefully keep doing more and more of it. Hey listeners, you can now text me at 201-581-3983 to join our text-based community in the suite. After you do that, I'll be lifting you up, inspiring you, and supercharging your life and your career with awesome quotes, resources, and tips we learn from our great guests. It couldn't be any easier. Just text 201-581-3983. So I know that there are women right now listening to this episode and feeling that they too want that freedom. Uh, What you just said, it is liberating when you finally share it and you make the decision to go public with some of these stories. I found that all of a sudden I was walking on, on air. I felt like I had wings to fly and that what was holding me back in my personal life and my professional life was no longer an anchor. I, I have to say with the yacht theme, I love the torpedo, right? Anchors, torpedoes. These are, these are, are, are things that really that's how deep the emotion is. So what would be your advice? Because I do, I want this podcast to be prescriptive. How did you start then? Was it part of the Kansas City State University? Was it part of this financial therapy program? Well, I do not recommend the three decade long approach to (laughs) (laughs) all of this. Uh, I think people can really fast forward themselves. Where it really started for me was growing up, 
I used to watch my parents and say to myself, this is not going to be me when I grow up. And number two was, if only they could get out of their own way. If only they could get out of their own way. I mean, they had all the ingredients, smart, ran a great business, made a great income, were good people, just hot mess with their money. There's got to be a better way. So when I started out in financial services, it really was the intent to serve people and helping them find their better way. Because I did have a belief. I, I didn't have a belief that everybody spent all the money that they earned. I just had a belief that and an understanding that we have an emotional relationship with our money. So it really started in practice with people where their stuff started showing up. And mainly what I noticed is I'm analyzing the situation and I'm giving you great advice and you're not following through. And some people I could help them move the needle to follow through and other people it was more challenging. And I got really interested in that. So I really started getting interested in in, um, human behavior. And, you know, I started long enough ago that, you know, behavioral finance was really not being written about so much. And maybe five or seven years into my financial advising career, there there started a groundswell of talking about that, but it was still very academic and out of reach and the programs just weren't available. So I think it was just natural inclination and a desire to help people and then loving to learn that I just kept reading everything that was available to me to learn and to read and really taking the cues from the people that I was working with because I am a financial planner, right? So I've always taken a qualitative and quantitative approach, a non-financial and a financial approach to knowing that person as well as I know their money. And if somebody lets you in like that, they're also going to trust you to either tell you or you're just going to observe where they are having their challenges. And it Mm -hmm. came, in my opinion, it became my role to help them to complete, to cross the T's and dot the I's. And that really comes from having them open up, listen to their stories so that you can help them discover where their blind spots are for themselves, because it never pays to say, this is your problem. They have to say, this is my problem. So it was really a layering on of of books, the industry starting to evolve. And then probably the capstone was the Kansas State University Financial Therapy Graduate Certificate, which was a really deep dive into money and relationships, behavioral finance, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and a lot of other work, like everything and anything I can get on the topic, I study. I think the the first half of my career, I really spent more on the technical, the CFP, the SEMA designation. And then as more of the psychology came about, I started studying that more. From a practical sense for your audience, I think it's really about understanding your relationship with money. And it's, you know, I always like to say, and I don't, this is not very scientific, that our, our beliefs and our experiences are, you know, at the bottom of our subconscious uh, and just at the top of our subconscious. So we don't really need to dig that far. We don't need to go into deep therapy. Usually, you know, if there are no real dysfunctions, like if you're ga- if you have a gambling addiction, if you have a compulsive shopping addiction, right? Those types of things are where a mental health practitioner, I think, really needs to support someone. But if you're talking about improving mindset and improving behavior, then I can I think you can surface 
what were the things I heard growing up, that's somebody really just sending messages, right? And I'll give you a prime example with somebody, a client of mine that grew up hearing money isn't important. And five years into his first job as an investment banker, he had $1,000 to his name. Hmm. And he was not very happy about that. And he started getting some support around that. And what he, what he heard as an adult for the first time was money isn't important, where he had heard it growing up and internalized that message as a kid. When he heard it through the ears of now a 20-something-year-old man, he realized, oh, no wonder I don't have any money. I, too, have, I have this underlying belief that money isn't important. So if money isn't important, I'm not going to have any money. He since changed that where he said, you know, money, money isn't everything, but it is important. And he's a multimillionaire today, not overnight, you know, a couple of decades later of hard work. But that was a shift. So it's really what did we hear? What do we experience? Because we make meaning out of everything. So probably the biggest thing is really looking back on your experiences and just considering what did I make that mean? What did I know at the time? What did I not know at the time? Because Literally, like our four or seven or 10-year-old can be in charge of our money as, as adults because yeah, it, right? mm, we had these very, very smart. We didn't have all of the information that we needed to really decode what was going on from a factual standpoint. We felt emotions and then bang, like we made all these assumptions and then we made them mean something. And then we heard things growing up just to layer on the process of what other people believe. So then we adopted what they believed and they sent us messages about what is and isn't good or bad about money. Boom. Like that's a wild chemistry. So if you didn't have great experiences and you didn't hear all wonderful things and you didn't have role models that, and there's a very big difference, I think, between having a role model and having a mentor. Right. If your role model was very good with money and they happen to be your mentor, you're really, really lucky. If hmm. you were lucky enough just to have a good model, you might have picked up their habits. But what we really need is somebody to help us take on those internal abilities that we have. That's really mentoring. That's somebody who knows us. Right. That was my experience with Jeff through um, college. Right. He was mentoring me. He really he knew enough about what was going on. And he really was looking out for me because he he knew who I was and what I was about. And so there are people now listening to this podcast that are already working with financial advisors. Is it your recommendation as someone being in the fields and having both the technical and now the behavior, as you, as you mentioned, I think it does. It's interesting how you have both sides to the coin. So should they go into their like their quarterly meeting with a new approach and actually maybe share a story or two with their financial advisor? Should they maybe take charge of the discussion now and say, hey, you know what, Michelle, there's been something holding me back. Yes, you'll notice that Mark and I aren't we're, we're saving and we're doing well. However, you probably notice that we still have a little bit less where we could be doing more. So should they be doing that? Should they be bringing these issues up to their financial advisors with the people they're already working with? Only if they want to reach the highest level of potential that they can. Behavioral and technical combination is it's an approach, 
right? That's an approach to take with people where you're an expert in them and you're an expert in their money. The client's responsibility, right? We talk about fiduciary. The client has to be a fiduciary themselves first. And the advisor has to be a fiduciary for them. There's a dual relate. Nobody talks about this, but I look at it as you got to have a fiduciary. You have a fiduciary responsibility to and for yourself. So if you are aware that there are things that you are doing that are detrimental to your situation, or you just have a feeling that I'm, I'm doing pretty well, but I think I could be doing better. Yes, absolutely. Bring it to the table and give your advisor a chance to counsel you and, and guide you through a process of enhancing what you're already doing. And they may or may not have the skills to do that. It really depends. I, I think the way that the industry is right now is that advisors have a natural interest or inclination toward this type of approach and really understanding both, you know, the technical and the behavioral. Yeah. And at large, it's still a self-imposed curriculum to become good at, at both. Really. I think we still focus more on the technical, although I think our, you know, human social skills are, where the jobs all of all the jobs of the future really are going to be. So I think we're going to see more and more of this. And I want to just take a second because the word fiduciary, at least when I came into the industry, I was like, how I don't really understand. Why is that being brought up in a conversation? And you yourself moved as a financial advisor to an independent model that has that fiduciary standard. And I wondered if we can just spend a minute before we move on to the, the next topic. I feel like we can be in the suite here for hours and days and still not even get through all of the questions that I want to ask. But I think it's really important that from a client's perspective that you operate on a fiduciary capacity, meaning that you are recommending, you are making financial decisions, you're recommending investments based on what is in the client's best interest, Mm -hmm. rather than a suitability standard where says, hey, I might understand a little bit about your goals, uh, your risk tolerance, but I'm going to invest. The investment choices are going to be on the suitability. Can you just, in the most simplest terms, compare and just contrast that? The technical definitions, let's go there first. So suitability is, I believe that this recommendation is suitable based on knowing you as the client. Whereas a fiduciary standard is, I agree to put your interests above mine or my firm's. A lot of the difference boils down to conflict of interest. Is there a conflict of interest between me and the company that I work with that is going to impact you? What makes it difficult, I think, for a client is the lack of transparency on a very complicated Wall Street system that you're relying on your advisor to give you all of the fine print. Mm -hmm. Where I would start really is in any recommendation. Like if I, I, I cannot tell you how many times I've asked people, what is the fee you're being charged? And they'll say 1%. And then I'll really look under the hood and they're nowhere near 1%. 
because there might be mutual funds instead of that advisory account, which is technically a fiduciary account, right? So it's there, it's a partnership between the advisor and the client both being transparent with one another and the client really asking some tough questions. Like, I want to know how much does this actually cost me and how much are you being compensated? Now, that said, I should tell you, I'm I'm in both camps. I, I am not against commission-based business. There's a place for it. If the Department of Labor had its way, I'm not sure life insurance would exist because it's a commissionable product. But who among us right. does not need life insurance at some point to protect our family, right? Exactly. Uh, annuities would be commission-based business. I'm sorry, but there's a very big difference between accumulating your money and investing it in a growth orientation and then turning it into income where you want to guarantee that it's going to be there regardless of whatever the market does, right? So it's really, you know, like well-intended discussions that really boil down to it's an individual to individual case by case to determine what is the right mix of any type of approach or products for clients because you know we have philosophy and then we have people and every single person's different sure and so here i think is a really short list before we get to our last couple of questions is that well number one are you taking on new clients I am. So I have, you know, two sides of my world, which is Michelle A.B. So Michelle A.B. really is for the client who is looking to understand more about her or his money self. It's really understanding your relationship. And what I'm up to there is to help people to transcend their money beliefs, right? So it's all the tools in the education so that people can take that inspired action to realize their boldest ambitions. And, you know, let's not kid ourselves. Like, Creating wealth, it's the translation of translating your income into wealth. It ain't for sissies. It's not easy to do, right? Mm. It's not easy to do. The discipline to do something over many, many decades where you don't actually see or realize the results of that for many, many years into the future, that's hard. That's really hard for human beings. So we got to like give ourselves a break about that. Part of what I think is a catalyst to help us to do that is the more that we know about ourselves, right? Wealth from the inside out helps us to stick with our plans, make the plans, adhere. And even that, like, mm, adherence strategies of, you know, uh, what's going to work best to help me to follow through. Like, even considering that kind of stuff really moves the needle on being able to reach the goals that somebody wants to reach. You're accepting clients on the Michelle AB side, or are you also on the Snowden uh, side as well? Yes, both sides. It's a matter of Snowden Lane Partners. We'll have a link for it on the on the on the show notes too. Yeah. It's a matter of uh, if someone is looking for traditional wealth management, right? Financial planning, investment planning, etc. They're going to get Michelle A.B. because I'm the person doing it, right? So everything that I have in Michelle A.B. is a carve out to what my wealth management practice is. So in Michelle A.B., I'm not actually doing the planning. I'm not helping somebody plan. I'm not helping somebody to manage their money. I'm helping them manage what's in between their, their ears. Right. My wealth management practice does both. Okay, great. And one of the things that I want to leave our audience with too is that number one, I don't get paid anything to make recommendations. What I am recommending is that if you're listening to this podcast episode right now, 
And number one, you haven't been attending the meetings with your financial advisor. Uh, I want you to start doing that. Number two is to have your own, to start laddering some questions and some tough questions. Why are you recommending this? How much does it cost? What are the fees? How much am I being paid? And the third thing is to really start to understand a little bit more of yourself. Uh, Michelle, when is the book coming out? Because I think that that's a really good place to to start. Michelle has created the manuscript to help you kind of get out of the weeds. And what I will say from my perspective is that, yeah, when you really start to do the work, I, I love how you said it just before, Michelle, that it is really tough. This isn't work for sissies. There's no sissies listening to this podcast right now. Anyway. Um, you know, but taking that and really being intentional about your money, about your goals, Start to do these things just even a little bit will move the needle a little bit further than what you imagine. So when is the book coming out? When can we expect it? It's uh, again, the title is good with money. Yep. Can I, there's three things I can share with your listeners. Is that okay if I do that? Uh, yes, please. Okay. So what I, the best place to find all this is michelleab.com, which is Michelle with two L's, ab.com. And right on the homepage is a download for something called the Success Formula Guide, the Good With Money Success Formula Guide. I am so proud of this piece. It, uh, it, it was a labor of love. It came out of my soul. And then my designer just, bam, like it, it, I, visually, it just jumps off the page. Anyway, it, it actually helps people too consider some of the biggest accomplishments that they've had in their life, financial or otherwise, any part of their life, because how we do one thing is not necessarily how we do everything. Mm -hmm. And what this helps you to really identify is who, who are you being? How did you use hope, optimism, resiliency? What type of capital did you use? Not just what resources did you have, but who did you know? What did you know? Who are you being, right? Really taking a look down memory lane. So I'll give you an example. Somebody who did this, what she realized was how much she, as a resilient strategy, how much she uses positive self-talk. Positive self-talk is nothing new. The breakthrough for her was she realized how much she relied on it and she hadn't had that awareness. So now she's got a game plan going forward of, okay, I'm all of these things that you identify in the success formula guide, they're all transferable skills onto your money. So when you start having these aha, you go, oh yeah, I know how to do that. I already did that. I layered in like, this is part of my it factor. I'm just going to apply my special sauce to my money. It's not so much what you're going to do with your money. It's how you're being with your money is what it helps you to identify. So that'd be my, that's like my number one favorite thing to tell people about. The book is coming out later this year, and right now people can sign up to be on the wait list to find out about that launch. And the third thing is that if anybody downloads the Good With Money Success Formula Guide, they'll also start getting information that I am relaunching uh, the beginning of the second quarter, my Good With Money workshop, which I did in 2020. I'm bringing it back this year. Small group workshop class. Great, great advice. Ladies listening, you're going to love this. We're going to have a link in the show notes. And what's the best way for people to get in touch with you, Michelle? Really, the best way is uh, either reach out to me on LinkedIn or send me an email through my website, michelleeb.com, or they can find me on Instagram. 
Okay. And our last question, and I know it's a doozy of a question, and I do want to mention we changed it up for season two. Uh, And so it is that book recommendation question. Give us Michelle's best recommendation for the book that's going to transform us for 2021 uh, in addition to your success guide. Okay. I'm going to, I was going to go in one direction with the way you phrased that question. I'm going to go with Brendan Burchard's book, High Performance Habits. Hmm, mm -hmm. It's a game changer. Okay. So we're going to have a link in there. Are you, uh, you had said, do you do more audio based reading or more like hard copy book or electronic reading? Hard copy book. Okay. Yes. That's so great. I've tried audio. I've tried. (laughs) I've tried. Um, I love it with you, like blow drying your hair and having that copy book. I have pictures to prove that. So that is so great. I have to tell you that I have sincerely enjoyed this hour with you. I feel like it could go on for many hours. What a gift that you have given us today. And I feel that the success that that our listeners are going to achieve during the year, if you really want to do something really bold into the next year, all of the episodes that we've had on second season right now have positioned our listeners for that. So there is no excuse, ladies and gentlemen, why 2021 can't be your best year in the way that Michelle Arpin-Pagina, that I see it being your best year. So with that, I will give you the deepest of gratitude for your time and your expertise today. We're we're actually better off for it. So thank you. Well, your audience is a gift and I don't take it lightly that you've allowed me to be a part of this and i you are an amazing host this was so much fun to talk with you thanks for having me on you're listening to in the suite a podcast that shares amazing stories of women in business in the financial services and the wealth management industry our producers are tina powell and kevin hershorn our editor at large is kevin hershorn our content writers are carmen barner and tina powell Our research and technical assistants are Rachel Powell, Sarah Smirker, and Kimmy Rice. In the Suite podcast is proudly sponsored by C-Suite Social Media, a digital marketing and social media agency for C-Suite leaders and companies in finance and technology. You can visit csuitesocialmedia.com to learn more. And thank you so much for listening and subscribing and giving us five-star reviews. We are so grateful to you. We've got listeners in 547 cities and 32 countries at the time of this release. This podcast was inspired by you and created for you, ladies. So please let us know how you enjoyed this episode with Michelle Arbimbagina. And give us your thoughts on LinkedIn and Twitter and Instagram. Hashtag in the suite. You can follow with her on LinkedIn and Instagram at Michelle Arpimbagina and check her out at michelleab.com. And always, if you would like to share the name of a rock star woman in financial services that we should consider interviewing in 2021, please send it to me at tina at csuitesocialmedia.com. Again, thank you so much for listening and subscribing to In the Suite.